All right, so for the past three weeks, we've been looking at the um, importance of words, right? So now we're about to change gear a little bit. Um, we're going to shift gear from looking at the importance of words to chapter 18, where Bildad, Job's friend, speak again for the second time. So now um, if you look at verse 1 in chapter 18, it says this, then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said. Now, if you read that, then you would know there's something that Bildad is answering. It says, Bildad the Shuhite answered. So what is he answering? Answering us this morning. So let's, let's look at um, the previous verses from chapter 17. I'm going to read for us from chapter 17, verse 13 onwards, just to give out a bit of context. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will, I, will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? So Job was speaking about his hope and, and the idea of having Sheol to be his dwelling to be his home. So Sheol is, Sheol is the idea of hell, okay? And, and that's what Bildad in, is answering when he said, now Bildad the Shuhite answered and said to Job. So that's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to focus on this morning, the idea of, of Sheol uh, as a dwelling place, okay? Now, in, and in, in the last verse of chapter 13, just confirms exactly the content of chapter 18. So if we, if we look at, uh, the, so jump to the last verse, verse 21 of chapter 18, it sort of just summarizes what Job, uh, what Bildad, Job's friends, been telling us in, in this chapter. So I'm going to read for us 18, 21. Surely such are the dwelling of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. So what we're going to look at today in chapter 18 is exactly that. The dwellings of the unrighteous people and the, the place of people who have no God. Uh, people with the, in the absence of God, what, what does it look like? So that's what we're going to look at. And many people don't believe that they need God in, in their life. Many people. Um, and, and the fact that they can live their life just normally, as you know, as well as anyone could, without God. Now, I'm not speaking just about irreligious people, people who do not know God, but I'm I'm speaking about church-going Christians as well, and that there are some church-going people who believes that they don't really need God uh, in their lives, and that they can live pretty well without God in their life. You see. Religious people believe that God has set everything in order. They, that the fact that God has made the law of nature and everything and set the world, so to speak, in motion. Now there's no part for God in, in, in running the creation anymore. So some religious people, church-going people, believe that. And... If, when they believe that, what happens is they, they simply need to obey God's law. 
if they obey God's law, everything will be fine. Everything will be uh, as per normal, will run as, as predicted. Because God has set it in motion. In, in a sense, it's like a software. I'm, my background um, before I become a pastor was a, a developer, a software developer. Uh, computer science is my thing. It's just like a software that a programmer has created, has programmed. Once, once the software has been programmed, the, the programmer has nothing to do with it. It's just run. It's just run. And, and some religious people, some church-going Christian believe that's how our life is. God has ordered and set the world, His creation in motion, and there's no need of God anymore. He just hands off. Now, you go do what you want. If you obey the law, you, you'll be fine uh, in that sense. So some Christians, some religious people believe that. And, and that's what Job's friends and Job's friends, especially build that, you know, the three friends of Job and the fourth one as well, we will shall uh, listen to much later on in our series, uh, Elihu, they, they believe this. They believe that God, they don't really need God, to be honest, that God has set the world in motion. And um, I want to say they, their understanding of God and God's involvement in the creation, it's just like uh, the world, uh, that God is a, a marionette, a string to be pulled. If you obey certain law, God will, this will happen. And they can predict, so to speak, God's next move by their own action. That's what we have seen, and that's what we have called uh, retribution theology. So religious people, in a sense, those that believe in such a way, they, they don't really love God. Their heart don't love God. They, they use God for themselves. They use God to meet their needs, but their heart does not love God. So what would life be like if that is true? If, um, if God, in fact, has moved away from the creation that he has created, that God has moved away, that he's now a distant God that has no longer in control or no longer uh, take part in his creation. What does that look like? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does the world look like in the absence of God? And that's, uh, so we're going to look at five things we will experience in the, in the uh, absence of God. Five things. First one, darkness. Two, trapped. Three, terror. Four, total destruction. And five, the great chasm separation. So, so I'm going to use Job 18 as our guide uh, closely. And we're going to look at section by section from the beginning to the end to guide us in these five experiences uh, that we will experience in the absence of God in our life. So the first one, let's read darkness. Let's read from verse 5 to 6, Job 18. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. See, how does life look like in the absence of God? Darkness. Darkness. Uh, notice how Bill that uh, equates wickedness to darkness. 
wickedness is darkness as far as Bildad is concerned. And he's right. Uh, wicked people are, are not those who act wickedly. It's not. It's wicked people who act wickedly, not the other way around. Um, we often think that we are what we do, but that is not true. Uh, let's think about it. Are you a baker because you bake? Or you bake because you are a baker? What makes you a baker? Is it because you bake? And you see, I, because I'm, I'm no baker, right? I could bake every day for the next week, for the next seven days, bake every day. That will not make me a baker. However, say there's a baker, there is a baker who, who's, who's been unwell and she's, she's unable to bake for most of the week. And on the last day of the week, she bake. So she bake one day a week and I bake seven days. Yet she's the baker. I'm no baker. Because we are not what we do. We do what we are. And, and that's what Bildad is trying to say here that wickedness equal to darkness, the fact that the wicked people are in darkness, that's why they do wicked things, not the other way around, not the other way around. You are not what you do, you do what you are. And, and that's what we see here in our first point, what, what we will experience, the experience of the absence of God. So, so that's how life is in the absence of God, darkness. See, sinful people, uh, sinful people sin. Our sins don't make us sinful. So we need, to make, we need to understand that. Our sinful action do not make us sinful people. It's the other way around. Because we are sinful people, we do sinful things. Uh, see, sinful people, because sinful people may strong-will themselves may be so determined to stop sinning a particular sin. Because they're strong-willed, they're determined, they could do that. But not, not, not for long. Because after that, after a while, they will sin. Maybe not that particular sin, but they will sin an, another kind of sin. Why? Because they are sinful people. Sinful people sin. So in darkness... When you, you will do everything in the dark, regardless of what you do, you will do it in the dark. And this is perhaps the most important point from Bildad's uh, speech in chapter 18. This first point here, darkness. To be a Christian is, is not to become religious. To not do all these religious things. To come to church doesn't make you a Christian. Um, does not make you love God. In a sense, that's not, uh, you, you come to church because you are a Christian, because you love God, not the other way around, you see. And it speaks of uh, transformation of the heart rather than our action, rather than what we do. When our hearts have been transformed, our action will change. Our action will change. So transformation of heart speaks of something deeper than a simple behavior modification. And that's what this is all about when he talks about darkness. That wicked people are in darkness regardless of what they do. They need light. So darkness is the absence of light. What do you, do you see it now? Like without the transformation of our heart, 
we we can serve the Lord. We can we can pray to God. We can read our Bible. We we can do all that religious things, but we will do that for ourselves without the transformation of the heart. We will do all our religious activities, our spiritual disciplines, for what? For ourselves. We want to be blessed by God. We don't want to be punished by God. Whatever that reason is, we do it for us, not out of love for God. That is happened if we do not experience a transformation of heart. If we stay in darkness, if we, if, if our life is in the absence of God. So in the absence of God in our life, we are in darkness. And no matter what we do, uh, we will still be in darkness and we will not please God with that because our heart is not transformed. So that leads us to our second point, trapped. So what's the second experience in the absence of God? Trapped. So let's read from verse 7 to 10, chapter 18, verse 7 to 10. His strong step, steps are shortened and his own schemes thrown him down. For he's cast into the net by his own feet and he walks on its mess. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. So the second characteristic of a life without God is trap. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, someone who's trapped cannot move, generally speaking. They can't move and they cannot untrap themselves. If you are really trapped, you cannot untrap themselves. Uh, you may try and people who are trapped and try to untrap themselves, they may even think that they're off the trap but without realizing they're still in the trap. Now, one striking thing that Bildad says in, in verse 7 here, let me say it again, let me read it again. His strong steps are shortened and his own schemes thrown him down. There's a couple of things that we would notice here. Strong steps talk about a very confident person, self-reliant, self-confident person. And because of that, he's trapped. It is his own scheme, as Bill that says, that trap him, that, that put him down. He said like his own schemes thrown him down. Do you see that? Self-confident person, his actions, person who, whose life has no God in it. In the absence of God, people do things with their own strength, with their own ability. And that's what Bill that is trying to say to Job, obviously we know that is incorrectly applied to Job, but we could learn from this. Uh, they will fall by their own hands and these pe people like this will, will make great plans about their life, of their life, and perhaps even for his family. Maybe they're not so selfish. They don't think about just himself, especially if you are a father or a mother. A lot of things that you do, you don't do it for yourself, but you do it for your family, for your children, right? And, and that is just common, very common in our society to make grand plans for our future. We, you know, most of us live in Australia and uh, we call Australia home. And we, we're very obsessed with, with uh, our, you know, how well we do with our super fun so that we can retire well. And, and, you know, that is a wise thing to think about your 
future. It's a wise thing. But we can be too obsessed with it. We, we can plan and, and orchestrate and do everything with that one thing and so focused with that one thing in our life that we forget the bigger picture of why we are here. And, and that is very common in our society today, even among us church-going Christians who come to Sunday, who serve God, who read our Bible, who pray, and, and, and without realizing that we are trapped by the things of this world. You know, how, why we be so obsessed with it? Uh, because we've been tra- we are trapped. We are so confident that we can, we can do this. And we're trapped by the things of this world. And the Bible, um, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Colossians 3 verse 2. And says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Uh, I, I love it when, when Paul is very explicit. He, you know, he could just say, set your minds on the things that are above. But he did not. And he contrasted. If you don't set your things, your, or your mind on the things that are above, what do you do? He said, the things that are on earth. That's what you do. You set your mind on the things that are on earth. And the apostle Paul contrasted, said, set your, things on the, uh, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? How, how, how do you get out of this trap by the things on earth? By, you see, by trying hard to set your mind on the things above is what most people would do. They would tell themselves as they read their Bible, as they pray, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set my my mind on the things that are above. Well, that won't work, you see. Just by trying harder, that won't work. Uh, and peop- some of you perhaps have tried to read Bible daily and for many years and many attempts, and you probably succeed for a while, you know, for a first month or two, and then you fail and you realize, man, I, 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 I fail. And there's so many Christians that I know fail in that way just because their method is try harder. And that ends up after, you know, years and years of being Christian, years and years of trying harder to be disciplined. What they do is they just read, you know, uh, Genesis and probably Exodus most of the time, and then they fail and they stop. So that is not how we do. That's not how we can set our minds uh, on the things that are above, not by trying harder. Let me tell you, we will fail if you do that, and many people have failed because of that. And because they, they are, it's like setting your own trap, you see, by being self-confident, self-determined, just like what Bildad is saying. Self-confident, strong steps. It doesn't work. See, the key verses is, um, I think I, I'm trying to be tricky with you here by reading verse 2 of Colossians 3. Uh, I skipped verse 1. Uh, but let, let us, don't skip verse 1, and we'll see it in context. And... And also keep reading uh, till a couple of verses after verse 2. And we will see the key on how we can, sit, we can set our minds on the things that are above. Not by trying harder. So let me read for us Colossians 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the key. That's the key. You, you need to die. We need to die and be raised with Christ. Let our life be hidden in Christ. We need to, in other words, we need to move out of darkness, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that is how we can set our mind on the things that are above. It's where we are, the absence of God that has trapped us. So we need to have our life hidden in Christ. We need to be buried, died with Christ and be raised with Christ. And only then we can set our minds on the things that are above. So that's the second point. The absence of God trapped us in sin. The third point, terror. So let me tell us, uh, let me warn us. Uh, from here on, uh, the picture of the wicked people uh, getting worse, from really bad to worse. We're seeing darkness, we're seeing being trapped. Uh, now it's going to get worse. Um, however, the good news is I'm going to get a lot faster from here on. So we got three more points to go. So point number three, let's read from verse 11. Terrors frightened him on every side. This is the picture of the wicked, right? People whose life has no God in it. Paris frightened, frightened him on every side and chased him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. First up, I want to say, he is torn here. He says he's torn from the tent in which he trusted. He trusted his tent. He trusted his dwelling. He trusted what he has built. And that will be torn down. And he is being led away to the king of terror. So in the absence of God, there is terror and fear. Notice the graphic Im Im imageries here. Uh, from it consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs, torn from the tent, brought to the king of terrors. This is a picture of terror and fear. See, the, the remedy to our fear is not self-determination. And cleanse our face and tell ourselves, we can do this. Um, it's not. Uh, some of you may have been afraid of many things in your life. And, and I'm, I'm not talking about the fear of spiders or cockroaches. I'm, I'm not talking about that, okay? Uh, some of us have been afraid and fearful in our life. Uh, for example, you fear of your future, the uncertainty of future. You fear about your career, your job, fear the f about the future, worry about the future of your children, what, how they're going to turn out to be. Or perhaps uh, young people, you, you, you're afraid or worry or fearful of, of your life partner, your spouse. Or perhaps if you're a bit older about retirement. Or perhaps even if you are 
even a little bit more older about the fear of death itself. So perhaps that's some of us. And let me say this, even church-going Christians worry. Uh, this is not just something that happened to people who do not know uh, Jesus, who do not know God. Um, but let me say, um, the, the thing is, um, for Christians, many Christians, they, I've noticed, I observe, they didn't step into God's calling in their life because of fear. Because when God calls someone for his mission, usually it's bigger than themselves. God does not call us into his mission that is small enough for us to handle and to conquer and to accomplish without God's help that we can do on our own. That never happens. You just look at the Bible. Just read the Bible from cover to cover. Every time God calls his children for his mission into call them into God's mission. It's always bigger than what they could do and achieve on their own. And some of us are feeling that way when God calls us into God's field, into God's mission. We feel inadequate. We are afraid. We worried. And because of that, it stopped us from stepping in faith into God's call in our life. So we, we may be afraid of uncertainties. We may be afraid of suffering. Uh, we, we may be afraid of letting go of comfort, whatever that may be. Different people have different things and different reasons for being afraid and worry and fearful. One mark of someone whose life is absent from God is this, third point, terror and fear. So what are you worrying about today? What, what do you worry about today? What are you afraid of today? What is your worry? And does Jesus reign in your life? Some of you hearing today, you need to let go. Some of you listening right now, you need to let go. You need to let go and you need, instead of clenching harder your fist and say, I can do this, you need to let go. You need to release it. You need to say, I can't do this without God. And I need to trust. You need to loosen your grip and trust God to hold on to you. See, you're not the master of your own destiny. The Lord God is. Let's look at fourth point, total destruction. Job 18, verse 15 to 16. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. The fourth thing about life in absence of God is a total destruction. Not just any destruction, it's total destruction. You may not feel it or feel or, or seeing it right now. And for people who are who live their life without God, they may not see it right now. Everything seems to be going well and good right now. But in the end, there will be time where they will experience total destruction. See, when a place is destroyed, usually it can be rebuilt. When a house is burned down, it can be rebuilt, usually. And for most of us who live in Australia, we, we know all too well about bushfires, don't we? And bushfires, however devastating that is, uh, regardless how many houses and towns it destroyed, it can be rebuilt. And a couple of years ago, I visited a town 
here in Victoria, Melbourne, uh, um, that was destroyed, a town that was destroyed in the in 2009 in the great uh, Black Saturday, as we know it. It was destroyed. But a couple of years ago, this is within a decade, within 10 years, the town has been rebuilt. Yes, I can see remnants of the great bushfire, the, the Black Saturday, but the town has been rebuilt. And, and that is destruction, but not total destruction, as what Bildad is saying here, when he talk about sulfur is scattered over his habitation. See, in the absence of God, there is not just destruction, but total destruction, where life or places will not be able to be rebuilt. Uh, a de devastation that is far worse than any bushfires in the history of humankind. And Bildad described it like, um, like Sodom and Gomorrah, in a sense, like sulfur, brimstone, sulfur and brimstone, uh, a town that is famous in the Bible, uh, uh, but that was destroyed by God himself, a, a city that destroyed by God himself. And in, in, in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, and in the modern Sodom and Gomorrah, the, you know, many thousands years later, till today, the site believes to be Sodom and Gomorrah in, in Israel, near the Dead Sea, to this day is still barren and inhabitable. It cannot be rebuilt. And in fact, this is um, burning sulfur leaves a kind of very long-term barrenness that history says the ancient army sometimes used this method to destroy a town so that it cannot be rebuilt. Total destruction. I believe that those who have no regrets, see some of us when, when uh, see th this is a funny question, uh, but interesting question in a sense. When people ask, do you have any regrets in your life? Have you been asked that question? Do you have any regrets in your life? See, I, I come to believe that those who have no regrets in life is either very young or very arrogant. Humble people who are honest with themselves have regrets in life. Sadly though, some are still stuck in their regrets and they are unable to bounce back from it like a town that has been burned down and cannot be rebuilt. Some of us have perhaps experienced suffering and hardship so devastating that we have not bounced back and lapsed into depression again and again. Perhaps they have gone through too much by human standard, by the, the, you know, the standard of human suffering. That they, it feels that their lives have been utterly destroyed. If that's you, if you feel that way, if you're listening this morning and you feel that way, then this morning's word is for you and God's word is for you this morning. In the absence of God, there's a guarantee of total destructions. Yes. But what it says that, that is not said in that, is in the presence of God. And if you turn your life to God, He's more than able to heal your life. He's more than able to rebuild your life. This leads us to our final point, the great chasm, fifth point. Let me read for us from verse 17 to 20. 
His memory perishes from the earth, and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness, driven out of this world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people, and no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are applied at his day, and horror seizes them of the east. So our last point here, there is describing that there's a great chasm and separation between humankind, us, you and me, and God. There's a great chasm between us. And in the absence of God, what happened here, um, what happened in this great chasm, in the absence of God, he says there's no honor in life, and where all will be forgotten. No honor, all will be forgotten. There will be no legacy. And that's what Bildad explained. Everything you do, what it means is everything that you do today, that you work hard for today, will be forgotten. Will be for nothing. Can you imagine how devastating and how uh, meaningless life becomes? That is a meaningless life. In the absence of God, when there's no honor, there's no legacy. Everything that we do, everything that we work for is for nothing. Now, if that doesn't make you depressed, then I don't know what else will. Imagine everything, everything is for nothing. Everything will be forgotten. There's no legacy, nothing, no honor. See, Bildad suggests, so that's Bildad's final kind of point to, to Job, what Job is like. Um, Bildad suggests that because of what Job is experiencing, the suffering that Job is experiencing, Job is heading that way. Job is wicked man who is heading hell, a life without God, a life in the absence of God. So that's, that's Bildad's incorrect assumptions about Job. You see, I think I've said this before, that you can tell when the Bible talks about the first fruit, it talks about the harvest. So you can tell a harvest from the first fruit. The first fruit is sort of like a sample of uh, what the harvest is going to be like. So Job is, uh, Bildad is taking that kind of approach here. He's looking at Job's life, a lot of hardship and suffering, and say, you know, you're heading to hell. This is wickedness, Job. And um, it's just like some you can tell someone's tra trajectory of life where that person's going to head in, heading in life um, be, based on the current pattern of that person's life. That's, that's the same principle here that we, we see here. So, well, well, Bildad's description of hell is quite accurate of what life is without God. It's very accurate. His assumptions about Job, unrighteousness, uh, Job's wickedness is inaccurate. It cannot be further from the truth. Because now, you know, 15 weeks ago now, we, we, we've been here on, on the book of Job for 15 weeks. Um, so 15 weeks ago, when we opened the book of Job, we look at who Job was. Job was a righteous man, upright man. And the fact that Job is righteous, but at the same time, he's, current, he's enduring hell. He's a righteous man who is enduring hell in his life. And Bildad cannot comprehend that. Uh, there's nothing in Bildad's uh, wisdom that can understand how can a righteous man suffer 
so much, suffer like hell. So as righteous as, uh, I want to close with this, as righteous as Job was, he cannot help us, can he, in our suffering? Some of us, as I said, have suffered much and perhaps is still suffering and trapped in that cycle, in vicious cycle of depression perhaps because we can't bounce back. So as much as, as amazing and as righteous Job was, he cannot help us. Let me share with us someone who can help us. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate righteous man who suffered in hell. This is a man, Jesus was the man who, who went to hell and for us. While he is the light, he experienced darkness for you and for me. And the Gospel of Mark says this in Mark 15, verse 33, to describe Jesus' death and what Jesus experienced. Mark 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. There's three hours of pitch darkness on earth. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happens here? Well, Jesus who deserved heaven or all that heaven has to offer, he went to hell. So that us, you and me, who deserve all that hell has to offer, can experience heaven. Some of you today are still chasing pleasures and comfort in life. And because you think that's where you will find happiness, that's, you, you think that if you have that thing, if you can get that thing, whatever that thing is, you will finally be happy. Let me say that's you will be disappointed if that's how you believe. Because when you reach it, when you got it, when you get that thing that you've been dreaming of and saving up for, it will let you down if you try to find happiness there. And some of you, perhaps today, avoiding God's call in your life because you don't want to suffer, because you don't want to take the risk of losing the comfort of your life, the friends in your life. You want that certainty in your life. You have avoid suffering and hardship because you're too scared. You, you say, you know, God, this is too big. I, I, you know, and, and you have avoid God's calling in your life because of that. See, suffering and hardship is not the enemy to avoid. Some of us think that suffering and hardship is the enemy that we ought to avoid at all costs. It's not. It's not. If, if Job, if the book of Job has something to teach us, that's that. Suffering and hardship is not something we, we should aim with our best effort to avoid. It's not. It's not the enemy. So do not avoid them at the expense, especially at the cost, at the expense of avoiding God. Some of us try so hard to avoid suffering and hardship at the expense of avoiding God, avoiding God's call in our life. And choose instead to live a life in the absence of God. And let me leave us with two quotes. The first one, joy 
What is joy? Joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. And joy is the flag that is flown over the castle of our hearts when the king is in residence there. So joy is like a flag in a castle when king is reigning and taking residence in your heart. You see, this is like in, in, in Buckingham Palace in England, the, the sovereign, uh, the, the, standard, um, the standard royal flag, the standard royal flag is flown uh, above the Buckingham Palace when, when the queen is, is in, in the house. And, and joy is like that flag in our life. We will have that flag flying when the King of Kings, Jesus, reigns and takes residence in our hearts. So don't run away from hardship. Don't try to avoid hardship at the expense of avoiding God's call in our life. Some of us need to let go of this idea of happiness and comfort that will disappoint us. Let us pray.